Thank you. Thank you, Gloria. Um, Gloria first suggested um, this topic uh, when she invited me to speak to you uh, by saying that she would like to learn more about the other part of our religion. And, you know, I've always thought of Unitarian and Universalist as pretty well balanced parts of our tradition, so I was curious about why the universalist side seemed to be the other side. Why not, I mean, why not say we're Unitarian, we're Universalists, and the Unitarian side is the other side. So I, I started out with some sense of puzzlement about this. Um, and as it happened, I was at a uh, dinner party last night with several other uh, people from this church, and I, I expressed this puzzlement to them and asked them, why, why does the universalist side of our uh, tradition seem more puzzling or mysterious or obscure? Uh, and maybe that's true and maybe that isn't. So I want to do something a little bit unconventional to start with. How many of you think of... How, how many of you think you understand the Unitarian side better than the Universalist side when you think about those many meanings? Oh, quite a few. Maybe not quite half. But, and what, how, how many of you are on the other side? You understand, think you understand the Universalist side better? One, one or two people. Okay. Well, that seems to confirm Gloria's impression. Um, and I don't know if I can give you a satisfactory answer to why that is, because it, I don't think of them as, I don't think of them as one uh, being more uh, obscure or uh, harder to understand than the other. In fact, in some ways, um, the universalist side is much more easily summarized. The, the Universalists traditionally believed two things, that God is love, that is, among all of the characteristics that classically or traditionally have been attributed to God, uh, mercy, justice, um, omniscience, uh, benevolence, uh, omnipotence. Benevolence stood out for the Universalists. God is love. And the second thing, the corollary to that, was that a loving God doesn't create a place where some people are condemned for all eternity to suffer uh, horrible torments because of the way they live their lives. That was basically the universalist belief and commitment. Um, and having said that, let me say a little bit, uh, well, before I go on to Unitarianism, the word universalism meant that salvation is universal. Includes everybody. Nobody's excluded. Nobody ends up in hell forever. And some, uh, many universalists believe there was no such place as hell at all for anybody ever. Um, because that was inconsistent with uh, what a loving God would do. The other side of our heritage, what we call Unitarian, uh, is another theological term that is to be understood in opposition to Trinitarian. Uh, Unitarians in, uh, in different ways rejected the, uh, the Nicene Creed, which says that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are three persons Excuse me, I shouldn't say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I should put it that way, are three persons who are all, in different ways, God, thus a trinity. And early Unitarians uh, denied that Jesus was uh, of the same substance as God, and that was the, that was the official uh, Roman Catholic um, uh, doctrine, consubstantial. Jesus and God were consubstantial, the same substance. And so Unitarianism, uh, the word Unitarian, arose as a, uh, as a rejection in various ways of that Trinitarian doctrine. So it's strange, a bit strange, that we as contemporary liberal religionists today should be the only church, almost the only church 
on on earth or certainly in the Christian tradition that has two theological terms in its name. I mean, think about other churches. Protestant generally got their name because they were protesters. And who did they protest against? The Catholic Church. And Catholic means universal, uh, not a theological term. Um, Methodist is not a theological term. Presbyterian is not a theological term. Congregational is not a theological term. Baptist, well, maybe Baptist is a kind of theological term because baptism has theological implications. But here we are, a non-creedal religious tradition with two very creedal assertions, seemingly, in our name. Very strange. Um, so, let me, I thought maybe a, a, a comparative approach to what I'm going to say this morning would be helpful, comparing the Unitarian and the Universalist sides of our tradition. And to start off with a similarity, both of these traditions arose in reaction to Puritan, Calvinist, congregational churches in New England. And I'm speaking only, some of you know that there's a tradition of Unitarianism in Europe, but I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just going to deal with how it developed in America. And around the 1740s, both, um, both of our traditions began their life in America. In, in the 1740s in Pennsylvania, you know from the, the, from the uh, phrase Pennsylvania Dutch that, uh, and maybe you know that Dutch is a misnomer for Deutsch, and that these were really German uh, immigrants in, in Pennsylvania, uh, came over to Pennsylvania with uh, universalist ideas. Uh, they were what we call pietists. Uh, they emphasized Quietness, something, something like Quakers, although they were not Quakers. Uh, although, as you remember, uh, Pennsylvania was founded as a Quaker colony. Um, pietism meant that uh, they they had a strong sense of the inner life when it came to religion. They weren't particularly doctrinal. They didn't. Uh, they didn't. They had broken off as part of the Protestant Reformation way back in the 1500s in Germany, and uh, gradually, because of uh, greater persecution, uh, they uh, eventually fled to the New World. And many of them did. And they brought with them this pietist tradition, which included a lot of universalist elements, included a strong emphasis on love as the primary characteristic of God. And this was in the 1740s, and they were publishing and preaching, uh, although they weren't very well organized. Uh, so that it, it existed as a kind of conversation, one might say, but not a, a, a set of organized uh, churches. About 30 years later, um, on the Atlantic seaboard, uh, particularly uh, uh, from Boston up to Gloucester and down to Atlantic City in New Jersey, uh, that, uh, so, so quite, a, quite a range along the Atlantic seaboard, a, a man named John Murray, who had come over from England in 1770, began preaching universal salvation. Everybody would be saved. Um, and this was a reaction against, as I said, the, the Calvinism or the Puritan uh, tradition within New England's congregational, congregationalist churches. One of the elements of Calvinism, uh, you may remember, was predestination. Predestination was the doctrine uh, strongly advocated by John Calvin back in the 1540s and 50s um, that God had determined the fate of every human soul at the beginning of time and that whether you were going to end up in heaven or hell was uh, determined at that beginning of time and it didn't make any difference what you did or how you lived your life or what you claimed to believe or not None of that made any difference at all. Predestination. Um, that was, to say the least, not a very comforting doctrine. 
uh, meant you could do nothing to determine your ultimate fate. And I I think it's fair to say that it it was an oppressive doctrine. People were terrified uh, of that they might be the ones destined to go to hell. And if you read Puritan literature, you see that people spent an inordinate amount of time sifting through their lives and sifting through their experiences of God and trying to figure, trying to look for some sign that would assure them that they were among the elect. Uh, this was this was a religion of anxiety, and to have someone come along and preach the love of God and universal salvation swept like a hurricane of fresh air through. Uh, through many New England people, uh, so it was a it was a doctrine, a preaching that was destined to become very attractive, and among um, Methodists and Baptists, particularly, uh, this doctrine attracted a, a large number of people, and, and uh, some of them, uh, especially in the Connecticut Valley, the Connecticut River Valley, running up through Middle Connecticut and up into uh, uh, well, down in through Massachusetts also. Um, up and down that valley, a man named Caleb Rich uh, preached universal salvation, and many people uh, streamed out of their Baptist and Methodist churches and formed new congregations and called themselves universalists. And this would have been in the 1750s. Um, 17, well, excuse me, that's a little early. 17, I mean, 17, 70s, I think, just in the years immediately before the American Revolution. So there was not only political unrest, but a lot of religious unrest during that decade. Um, And then John Murray, as as I said, came over from England, was uh, preaching up and down the Atlantic coast uh, his his version of universal salvation, which he had brought brought over from England, and it was a breakaway from the Methodist Church in England, as uh, many of the native universalists in Connecticut and Massachusetts had also been breakaways from Methodists as well as Baptists. Now, at the same time, what eventually would become the Unitarian side of our tradition was also in its beginnings. But I'm going to call these people not Unitarians because that that word came along much later. Uh, I'll call them the Boston liberals for lack of a better uh, lack of a better term, because, in fact, they were centered around Boston, Um, you know, an old uh, in the late 19th or maybe early 20th century uh, Unitarians were accused of believing in the fatherhood of God the brotherhood of man and the neighborhood of Boston (laughs) and it's true and uh, and these were by and large uh, under the influence of Harvard educated ministers they uh, comprised the elite mostly of Boston society there were merchants and doctors and lawyers and professors and uh, uh, those occupational strata of society were what was most strongly represented in this early liberal movement. And the issue, again, was salvation, um, but not universal salvation. The issue was that Boston liberals began to believe in their own innate goodness. A very unpuritan and un Calvinistic step of arrogance, some would say, Uh, but they believed that human beings were educable, improvable, and by their own merit or how they lived their lives might achieve salvation. And it was later on in the 19th century that uh, someone said that the difference between the Unitarians and the Universalists was that uh, the Unitarians, uh, the Universalists believed that God was too good to damn anyone, and the Unitarians believed that they were too good to be damned. <laughs> and this, it was Star King, uh, uh, at least it's attributed to him. Uh, I, I, and I think it's correct, but I haven't actually found the source, so I'm not totally sure. Um, in any case, you see 
you see uh, uh, some some elements of difference between the uh, early Boston liberals and the Universalists, and um, and. Th- Another important difference historically was that, in contrast to the Boston liberals, who, as they say, were the were the uh, uh, the influential people of society, um, the Universalists were were uh, more mm, they weren't they weren't as much urban folk, uh, and I don't mean to say they were uneducated. Many of them, most of them, were well educated by the standards of that time they had they had grammar school educations they were literate and well read many of them were wealthy farmers and quite socially prominent in their communities but they weren't boston upper crust types and so this class difference persisted all through the 19th century and is one of the reasons that most scholars use as an explanation of why it took the Universalists and the Unitarians so long to actually consolidate the two movements because, uh, because it did long after they were very much on the same page in, in regard to issues of social justice and uh, women's rights uh, in the 19th century. Uh, uh, Universalist and Unitarian women both were prominent in women's suffrage, in social uh, improvement uh, movements like uh, temperance, which in its day was considered social improvement. Um, uh, The Red Cross was founded by uh, Universalist Clara Barton. Uh, Dorothea Dix and uh, uh, others were active in in other social movements. And and these women's names, I think, are familiar to a lot of you. And and many, many of them were uh, members of Unitarian or Universalist churches and uh, and had circles of friends who, if not members, were, were associated, were fellow travelers with Unitarians and Universalists. So, so both of these movements had very similar agenda of social justice issues in the, 19, in the 1900s. Um, as Boston liberals... Uh, began to pull away from the congregational churches that they they were uh, existing in within the time and, and partly rebelling against. Um, I, as I said, that began in the 1740s, 1750s. And by the 1780s and 90s, questions began to arise among them also, not just about salvation, but about the Trinity. And various people began to question the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, this was a movement that was already well underway in England, uh, where the word Unitarian had come to be used as someone who denied the Trinity. And one of the most conservative members of the Congregational Church imported a, a book from England that described Unitarian beliefs in England, and he, in a kind of rabble-rousing fashion, I'm, I'm inclined to say in a Donald Trump fashion, you know, <laughs> held up this book as the worst heresy from England that is now infecting our, our congregational churches here in New England. Well, it wasn't really true because there wasn't, among the Boston liberals, no one was using the word Unitarian to describe themselves. Um, but the 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 ruse or the trick worked to some extent, and they began to be labeled Unitarians as a result of this publication of this English book. And uh, finally, in 1819, William Ellery Channing preached a famous sermon titled Unitarian Christianity, in which he took the, uh, took the gloves off and uh, said, okay, if that's what we're going to be called, we'll accept the word, and here's what we mean by it. And uh, proceeded to lay out what he t- described as the Unitarian interpretation of Christianity, which meant an ethical interpretation. Meanwhile, the Universalists were much more ahead of the Unitarians in organizing. Their first uh, Convocation, I guess we'd call it, was in 1790 in uh, in Oxford, Massachusetts, I think. Um, 
And then they met again in 1793, and by that time there were uh, maybe some two dozen churches represented. And then in a famous uh, gathering in Winchester, New Hampshire in 1803, they adopted their first creed. And it, it was fairly conservative by, by uh, our contemporary standards, but it did affirm a God of love that would eventually reconcile all souls to himself. Well, as a result of Channing's sermon in 1819, six years later in 1825, finally the Boston liberals decided that they could no longer remain within the congregational churches, which they had largely done up to that point. And the liberal ministers broke off and formed the American Unitarian Association in 1825. So... The breakaway from the Congregational Church on the, on the uh, so-called Unitarian side, which had begun really in the 1740s, took almost 80 years, 85 years actually, until they officially adopted the American Unitarian Association as their organizational name. Uh, the Universalist Church uh, had, on the other hand, moved much more quickly and began to call themselves Universalists from 1790. On the whole, the Universalists were slower to pull away from Christianity than the Unitarians were. The Unitarians were clearly Christians, although ethical Christians. That is, their emphasis about the meaning of Christianity was that it was an ethical way of living. It was, it was a movement that followed the way that Jesus had preached and lived his life. The emphasis was on Jesus' life, not on his death as a, an act of redemption. Uh, by and large, they were not talking about atonement, uh, atonement theology at all. Um, the Universalists um, had internal differences on that point, and it extended throughout the, the, much of the 19th century. Um, in 1870, uh, Herman Bisbee, a Universalist minister in Minneapolis, was hauled up on heresy charges by the Unitarian uh, powers, that, uh, Universalist powers that be, uh, because he was preaching evolution and biblical criticism. Uh, that was a bit of an anomaly, but it does indicate that the Universalists were slow to to break away from the Bible as the miraculous word of God. Uh, but if you look at the ways that... Uh, how am I doing on time? Okay. Um, if you look at the ways that, that Universalists broke away from Christianity... Um, they were, they were somewhat later. The, the big fight within the Unitarian side of our tradition came in the three decades right after the Civil War from 1865 to 1895. Whether Unitarianism was going to be a Christian religion was hotly, hotly debated during those years. And eventually... Um, in 1894, actually, at the National Conference in Saratoga, New York, uh, a new uh, constitution for the American Unitarian Association was adopted in which the Christian identification of the movement was played down. In other words, it was no longer assumed that just because you were a Unitarian, you were a Christian. You could be some other kind of Unitarian. Uh, and notice what had happened. Back in 1819, Channing's sermon was titled Unitarian Christianity. In other words, what he was saying is we are the Unitarian type of Christians. Unitarian is the adjective and Christian is the noun. By 1894, Christian is the adjective and Unitarian is the noun an interesting way of of seeing how the flip had occurred. And of course, today, you can be a, a Buddhist UU, a Christian UU, a Jewish UU, a, a, a pagan UU, uh, what am I leaving out? Uh, pardon me? Humanist, Humanist UU. Theist UU. Uh, the, 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 the hyphenations just go on and on. Um, 
And as I say, the Universalists were, were slower. They were still in 1899 as a good as a good year to uh, to cite, just before 19 year before the turn of the century. Uh, they they uh, adopted a new creed for the Universalist Church, and it contained five points: the universal fatherhood of God, the spiritual authority and leadership of Jesus of His Son Jesus Christ. Notice. No reference to the Trinity. They had become, even though they didn't work, use the word Unitarian, the Universalists were almost universally Unitarian at that point. They didn't, make, they didn't make a big point of it, but they were. Third, the trustworthiness of the Bible as containing a revelation from God. A, the word A is significant. The certainty of just retribution for sin, because they did believe that there was a period of purification after death before you finally passed on to your reward. And the final harmony of all souls with God. In other words, no eternal hell. That was in 1899. Um, in 1935, they, they passed another a revised statement of their their uh, creed, which included the phrase, faith in God as eternal and all-conquering love, and in the spiritual leadership of Jesus. Once again, the Christianity is, is still there, but it's, it's more toned down. And then, uh, after, well, things were kind of on hold during World War II for the Universalists, as they were for all of us, I guess. Uh, if we were around, of course, as I was. Um, in, the, in the immediate post-war years, there was a new movement within the Universalist churches that generally went under the name or the phrase emergent universalism. Emergent universalism. And um, it, would, it was questioning for the first time in a very strong way whether universalism should retain its Christian identity, uh, and one of the uh, one of the uh, famous sermons preached at a universalist convention, titled "New Wine and Old Bottles" by the minister Brainerd Gibbons, had this to say: "The crux of the conflict within universalism is clear: is universalism a Christian denomination, or is it something more, a truly universal religion?" While fully aware of its Christian heritage, many sincere universalists, he said, maintain that an inherent spirit of inquiry has carried universalism beyond Christianity. Well, the the reference to an inherent spirit of inquiry is something that had been present in the Unitarian side of our tradition from way back in the 1780s, and if you go back to Europe, back in the 1500s. The the right of every person to ask theological questions, to, to, um, to inquire into the meaning of the Bible, uh, in places, and there are many, where the biblical text is obscure and hard to discern or to, to tease meaning out of. Now in the 1940s, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but the universalists are specifically invoking a spirit of inquiry as an essential element of their own religious tradition. And this, this emergent universalism um, may have been maybe the final thing that made consolidation of the Unitarians and the Universalists possible in 1961. Uh, it had taken 61, 60, uh, both movements had been going on in one way or another for 200 years, in, originally in, in the eastern seaboard and then spreading all over the whole country. Um, so what, what's, what can I say by way of summary of all that? God is love. That was the universalist belief. And, uh, and I, I said both the Unitarians and the Universalists began their break away from Calvinism uh, in the form of arguments over salvation. And, of course, salvation is a word in, that, in the original time uh, meant post-mortem salvation. Afterlife, 
getting to heaven, conceived either symbolically or literally as some place that souls ended up. Throughout the 19th century, it's safe to say that salvation gradually began to take on a more this-worldly understanding in both among both Unitarians and Universalists. Uh, salvation increasingly became, became understood in this worldly terms as wholeness, sal- uh, of, of fulfillment of life, uh, righteous living, living in right relationship. Um, salvation meant becoming a whole human being living in relationship to God for those who still used God language. So by the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it's fair to say that when we talk about salvation, the, the notion of the universalist notion of eventually being reconciled to God moves us away from that literal conception of heaven and hell as a place that some people either do or don't go to. Um, so I think I will stop there, and uh, having probably said more than I should have, and let's, uh, let's see uh, what uh, has been evoked. This uh, woman over here is first, and then a couple over here, right over here on the... Okay. On the Wait, wait till the microphone gets over, please. I think this is being recorded, or at least we want oh, really? people to hear. Okay. Um, I'm interested in the relationship to the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. I know the Unitarians were very active in, in uh, Underground Railroad and abolition. What about the Universalists? Did they have a connection with the abolitionists as well? Well, well, well both did. And uh, the, the Unitarians are... are uh, they, it's, it's true, as you say, they were active, but not all of them were active. And it's a sadder uh, chapter of our history because uh, a lot of those wealthy Bostonians uh, had textile mills that depended on importation of cheap cotton from the southern states, and they were not happy with the abolitionist uh, movement. And they they were in control of the church. In fact, Channing himself reluctantly in the late 1830s finally came out against slavery and was sidelined by his board of trustees and and uh, was not in it fell into complete disfavor within his own church for the last uh, few years of his life so that's how strong uh, the 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 feeling was among uh, some Boston Unitarian churches I think the Universalists were more receptive to abolition. In fact, way back, George de Beneville, one of those German pietists who had come over to Pennsylvania, way back in the 1750s, said something like, um, he said he looked forward to the day when godly love would reach such proportions that there would be no distinction within our churches of, uh, in, in worship or color color. This is 1750. That's a remarkable counter-racist statement for that era in our movement. So I think on the whole the the Universalists were not as divided over the abolition question as Unitarians, but I'm less detailed uh, in my familiarity with that, so I'm a little uh, uh, see there was I think Ray and then this woman was next and then maybe Tony and then you. Yeah. Thank you for a very um, interesting and informative talk. You used the expression several times, God is love. And I've heard that expression many, many times in this congregation. I don't know what it means. Now, if it means the same as God loves us, then okay, I can understand that. But if it doesn't mean that, can you help me understand what that expression means? God is love. I just don't understand it. Well, I, I think it probably means different things to different people, so I can only uh, speak for myself. Um, as I said, um, initially, I, 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 for the Universalists, love was one characteristic of God among many others, like omnipotence and, and ju- justice and mercy. And, and there was always tension between, if, if, if we think of God as uh, being more on the side of love and less on the side of justice, then 
then you come out with a different feeling tone than, than the other way around. Uh, the phrase standing on the side of love has become a catchword in our UU churches over the last 15 years. And we see the those of you who go to the the vigils at the at the uh, uh, immigrant immigration uh, prison center uh, out here by the edge of the bay know that we so many of us wear those those t-shirts and standing on the side of love uh, is another way of saying that now God is love Um, there one of the ways to interpret that is that it comes from a belief that love is a force that is operative in the universe. A unifying force that draws us together and provides the commonality that we experience with one another as common creatures within, within the universe of creation. And that therefore we choose, we choose to use the word God to speak of that love. Now, not everyone would make that choice, but that's one possible meaning. Um, I'd be happy to hear others because I think from as we go around the discussion, because I think this is a question that undoubtedly uh, multiple answers could be given to. Uh, I think this. this, Okay. Um, Historical addition to your talk. I used to be a member of the congregation of Abraxas. We would oh, yeah. meet in, uh, for several days to do worship services. And back in the 80s, we did them in a church in the southern coast of New Jersey, mm-hmm. which was the church in which Henry preached his very first sermon in the United States. Henry left England swearing never to be a minister again. His boat landed on the coast. They'd run out of food, and there was a a calm, and they rowed ashore to get some food, and they met this man who had built a church saying, I'm waiting for a minister. And then, would you come and preach for me? And he said, no, I'm never going to preach again. Well, the guy said, okay, but if you're here in seven days, will you preach a sermon for us? The wind did not come up. The boat was there for seven days. So that was how the first universalist sermon got preached in the United States. Um, yes, the very famous famous story that uh, that Murray himself uh, recounted in his autobiography. So we assume that uh, that he we we hope that he didn't embellish it too much. <laughs> now, my question is: When the Unitarian and Universalists finally merged in the 1960s, what were the main issues? that came up at that point and do you see any continuation of those issues existing today within the church well universalist churches had been on the decline actually unitarian churches had too but not as seriously as universalist churches one of the things that that happened to universalist the universalist movement after the civil war is that um Many, many of the mainline, what we think of as the mainline churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, uh, maybe not Lutheran so much, uh, Disciples of Christ, so forth, congregational churches, um, began to be more universalist in their own preaching. So the distinctive doctrine of universalism was no longer um, unique. And so people didn't didn't feel the need to, uh, to to leave their 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 other mainline churches and flock to universalist churches. So it's it's raison d'être kind of dribbled away. Um, and universalist churches were uh, many of them were tiny and rural, and certainly in the during the depression and 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 the post-war era, they it was a declining movement. So uh, a lot of their leaders felt that that consolidation with the universalists was was the Unitarians was the way to to salvage what was left. Uh, they were they were there were still these remnants of class distinction that were uh, that were uh, caused some anxiety, um, uh, but. Uh, 
And mergers between churches always, everybody wants to make sure his dog is still in the race. And, and, uh, or her dog. Uh, and, uh, so there's, there's just anxiety about that. Compromise has to be made. And, and there was, uh, there were consolidation commissions, uh, beginning in about 1951. So it took 10 years of, of, uh, Pretty regular consultation and and debate and and negotiation and uh, uh, processes like that before it finally came to uh, came to a, a, a conclusion of, of consolidation. Well, uh, I, I think I think the status of Christianity was certainly an issue. The um, the name. I mean, Unitarian Universalist is a mouthful, and uh, one wanted one suggestion was that the, the, it be called the United Liberal Church, uh, but that would preserve neither the, the word Unitarian or Universalist. That was that was an issue. Um, there were issues of polity, how how uh, governance should be. Uh, Structured because the Universalists had very powerful state conventions that held a lot of power. The Unitarian churches had, had, in in a way, the 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 power in the Unitarian churches were was uh, centered at two different extremes. Each congregation was autonomous. And then there was not much in between that and the the AUA headquarters in Boston, which while not a dominating power, was more centralized than, than the universes were. So the question was how, whose, whose polity was going to win out. Those are just three of the issues that occur to me, and I think there were others. But they may seem, they may seem maybe small or petty to us, but they were, they were uh, uh, avidly held on to by both parties on the different sides of the... I've lost track of who's next. Uh, uh, Barbara, have you been watching? Uh, growing up in, in this church, uh, there were some universalists before we actually uh, merged. Uh-huh. And the, uh, the Unitarians tend to be deists in that they didn't believe there was any supernatural being manipulating worldly affairs on a day-to-day basis. Right. On the other hand, the universalists tend to believe in the imminence of God and in our everyday lives. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, that was the difference that I perceived. And our minister, J. Raymond Cope, uh, was able to satisfy both with his sermons and also offering spiritual nourishment. Uh, yeah. Um, it's true that there were there were a lot of deists in the uh, 18th century, uh, not only among Unitarians but but widely in France and England. And uh, deism is well, it's complicated, but to say it quickly, it's the notion that God was the first cause. He got the universe going like a giant clock, but then natural laws made everything function without any active intervention by God. It was just the, the clockwork it was the clockwork image of the universe that God had started but was kind of a, a non entity, uh, not literally but in, in terms of uh, in terms of actual relationship was uh, kind of uh, not very meaningful but relatively few of the 19th century at least early 19th century you certainly wouldn't describe Channing as a deist uh, Channing was very clear that that a loving God had sent Jesus to show us the right way to live uh, and and that's most certainly not a deistic uh, view so you had uh, you had a, a whole spectrum of nuances I uh, as you were speaking, there was something else I wanted to... Oh, it strikes me today, and this gets back maybe to the original reason that I was, or my puzzlement over the original reason I was asked to talk about universalism. If, and I, there's a certain sense in which the Unitarian heritage is somewhat more on the intellectual 
and uh, uh, rational side of religion and that universalism is more on the emotional feeling side, loving God and so forth. And if you think about how many sermons you have heard recently in this church about the importance of the intellect and reason versus the importance of love in our religious life, which wins, which wins out as you think about sermons that you've heard over the years? Love. So why is universalism the puzzling side of our heritage when it's the one that we hear most about from the pulpit? I'll just let you think about that. <laughs> Um, I, I had a question. You used a, a number of terms, uh, Christian Unitarians, mm-hmm. Buddhist Unitarians, mm-hmm. and some, in some camps they don't include a unit, a Unitarian and Universalist as Christians at all. And I'm wondering how you distinguish between, uh, well, and you could also say Universalist Unitarians along the same parallel, how do you distinguish between Christian Unitarians, which is a, a, a denomination within our denomination, and straight Unitarians? I, I'm not sure what the difference is. is well, it? I don't know that there is. I, I'm not sure what a straight Unitarian <laughs> is right. in, 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 in any of the ambiguous meanings of that term. Um, it, not everyone will agree with me on this, but it's always been my perception in contrast in con- if you if you were to join a methodist church you are not only affiliating with an institution but you are implicitly adopting a theology i mean methodists are clearly christians and they use mostly the apostles creed these days i think rather than the nicene creed but but it's assumed that you are affirming yourself as a christian when you join a church when you join a uu church you are not affirming you are affiliating yourself with an institutional tradition but you are not you're not affirming any particular theology you may uh you may have been a christian and you may still be a christian but you may Call yourself a pagan, or uh, you came from a Jewish tradition, and Judaism is ambiguous in that case, in that same respect too, because you can be a cultural Jew, you can be a religious Jew, you can be, um, and, and and with you, you. Uh, you can be a, a pagan UU. If I said pagan Unitarian, I, I misspoke. I meant to say pagan UU, Christian UU, uh, Buddhist UU, and so forth. I meant to use the combined name. Uh, but you're, when you join one of our churches, you're not buying into a theology. You're simply affiliating with a form of an institutional form of uh, of religious uh, searching. And uh, and living and process, so it's uh, the, the theology has to come from you. That uh, I could nuance that claim a little more, but I'll just leave it at that for the moment. Hi, um, can you say more about um, the Universalist, either itinerant or Chautauqua um, people in the frontier or Canada or Middle West? Well, uh, universalists were uh, very active in evangelizing out in the, uh, the, the Wild West, which meant west of Pennsylvania, <laughs> Ohio, Indiana, Iowa. Uh, uh, there, were, there were a widespread establishment of universalist churches, and especially this is true in the pre-Civil War period when universalism was, as I said, a more unique, uh, distinctive uh, religious perspective than it, than it was later on in the 19th century. So there were there was a lot of circuit writing. Uh, universalist churches could be found in many, many small towns. Uh, and some of those evangelists uh, later on were women. Eliza, Eliza Tupper Wilkes, I know, was the founder of the Sioux Falls uh, uh, South Dakota Unitarian Church. Uh, she later moved on to Reno, Nevada, I think. Um, uh, the Iowa Sisterhood uh, in, in, uh, 
in, in Western Iowa was primarily a Unitarian movement. So, so uh, there was evangelism on both sides. Circuit riding. Uh, uh, John Murray himself, whom uh, Mac uh, mentioned as uh, having come over in 1770 and uh, preached his first sermon there in Potter's Chapel, uh, went up and down the eastern seaboard uh, reportedly on horseback. Uh, preaching the universalist message in the early 1770s. I'm not sure I'm getting at all the nuances of your question. Yeah, it was. They were they were very committed evangelists during the, especially during the early early yes early 19th century, and I think a little more strongly on the universalist side than the Unitarian side that that tended to stay clustered around Boston for for a bit longer than the universalists did. We only have time for about one quick question. Very quick. <laughs> Okay, if no, no one else has a question... There's one right beside oh. you. Um, you don't mind me um, ending on sex, right? Um, <laughs> I was wondering, since the Universalists uh, believed that God is love, and eventually um, they were a little more liberal as far as gender issues in the ministers, there uh, seemed to be more um, female ministers in both... Unitarians and Universalists eventually. I was wondering if they were also more liberal in, in terms of sexuality and anti-puritanicalism, if there is such a word. Um, would Baloo give a sermon saying that we need to be more affectionate, for, for example? Or uh, was there a more liberal, progressive um, ideas about sexuality? Well, it's an easy question for me to answer. I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, uh, in regard to the question of women ministers, uh, the Universalists were way ahead of the Unitarians in ordaining women, but, but that's something that went in waves. Uh, there were early Universalists uh, and a few Unitarian women ordained in the, in the 1860s and 70s. Then, then you had the Iowa Sisterhood in the 1880s and 90s. Um, and then once women got the vote in 1920, uh, women ministers, as well as the whole feminist movement generally, that first wave of feminism, just almost vanished and didn't reappear again until Valerie Savings' 1962 essay on, on women uh, and Betty Friedan's work. So, uh, so there were, by 1950s and 60s, there were, I think, scarcely five Unitarian women in, in, in ministry. And, and it, was, it was a very explicit backlash. There's an old Unitarian journal called the, Uni- the Unitarian that was published uh, around the turn of the century. And it had its, it, it, on its masthead, uh, it just said the Unitarian. And in 1908, they changed the masthead to read a journal of the virile ministry. And that was Sam Elliott in Boston who was dead set against any more women becoming ministers in the Unitarian movement. Uh, so, it, I mean, the, the, the intentionality was dramatic. Thank you so much, Jay. They ring the bell. So, we have to put.